May the Lord be with you. For three of the seven summers that I was a tree planter, Buffy and I maintained a four-month long-distance relationship. We practiced this archaic form of communication called letter writing. And I used to get real creative. I would buy magazines, and I would cut out all sorts of pictures, and then I would write love letters to Buffy with a Sharpie marker. Years later, when we were cleaning out Buffy's parents' house, they were moving, we found a whole big box of those letters. And I was naturally horrified. I was utterly mortified, and I said, Buffy, please destroy those letters because, well, obviously I didn't want anyone to see them. They were really, really personal letters, and I couldn't stand the thought of some casual, somebody who just wandered in and a mere passerby may be happening upon that box and reading such cherished correspondence. And she did throw them out. <laughs> but she says she regrets the deci- regretted the decision almost immediately. And honestly, I for one am immensely relieved that she did do that. Because um, I might be a little sad that we can't go back and read them again. But she did manage to find one of those letters. And she's hidden it away somewhere. I guess she's still scared. I'm going to throw it out. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. But that's been a keepsake in her little box of keepsakes for like 26 years now. But if you did happen upon that box of letters, it wouldn't entirely make sense to you, but you would be catching a glimpse of our early days of romance. None of your business, though. None of your business. <laughs> Our Bible's full of all sorts of letters, and I guess that was the media of the day, so that's what we got. But why do we have so many letters, and why did we have to hear another summer sermon from the youth guy from another one of Paul's letters? Didn't we just finish a series on Galatians? And how are we supposed to make sense of these letters anyways? They were penned by and to like long-dead people who lived in places that maybe don't even exist anymore. And if you spend enough time in these writings, and since we're not really the original audience, we're literally reading someone else's mail. We don't really know the full context all the time. We don't know the people. These epistles, these letters were even written over the course of years. And sometimes it's hard to follow the progression of thought of the writers. How does this work even as scripture if there was a progression of thought. It's not easy, and there are some real interpretive challenges reading these texts. They can be difficult. They can be confusing. They can be frustrating, even. Sometimes these letters end way too quickly, and they don't say nearly enough about the stuff we really want to hear about. And other times, These letters say way too much about the things that none of us want to talk about. 
Paul's letters really annoy people. And maybe this is your experience. Some of us find it really hard to make peace with the Apostle Paul, especially when he says things that are strange or difficult or contradictory even. Can these letters, these little fragments and glimpses of those early days of the church still speak to us, even if they make us crazy sometimes? Making sense of Paul's letters is hard work, and there are some traditions that have come up with a terrific solution. They solve this messy business by generally avoiding Paul's letters altogether. And they'll occasionally cherry-pick a nice verse, something nice about love for a wedding maybe, or something about grace, or maybe something pointed and condemning about a very important and specific sin that we all need to talk about right now. And that habit is actually a real shame because while these communities are sidestepping uh, the tricky and the difficult bits, I'd say they're missing the point and they're missing out because they are skipping over a huge chunk of scripture. Despite all these difficulties, these writings represent a rich collection of brilliant work. These letters were written or at least attributed to or traditionally associated with the Apostle Paul. And that guy wrote a sizable chunk of the Bible. Now, there's a lot of debate about this stuff, but, and we're not entirely sure, but depending on where you start... Oh, sorry, I just skipped a sentence. We're not entirely sure all of the letters were actually written by Paul. There, I skipped that part. There we, that makes a better sense, right? Some of them were for sure written by him, but the letter to the Colossians is on the list of letters that we could call the, hmm, is that you, Paul? Depending on how you measure it and where we get counting, Paul gets some credit for about 20% of the New Testament, give or take a book or two. And that's a boatload of material to leave out. Paul was a formidable character in the early church, and he used to get real creative clipping and inserting and interpreting all sorts of bits of Old Testament scripture, writing passionate letters to the first churches, a brilliant theological mind with remarkable talent, a writer, a mentor, a pastor, a missionary, a guy with a really incredible personal story, rhetorical skill, logic, philosophy, knowledge of the day, a Pharisee's highly trained brain crammed with all sorts of biblical knowledge. This guy could take difficult ideas and elegantly convey them, sometimes with beauty and passion and poetry. What a shame to miss out on Paul. Now the gospel of Jesus Christ is a light and fluid thing. It's the character that drives this whole story. It's adaptive, and it's surprising, and it finds all sorts of ways into all kinds of places. The gospel slips past barriers, barriers of language and class and race and culture. It's a miracle to watch as the Spirit moves in communities across history against 
so many obstacles. Each of these letters is a snapshot. Yes, a tiny glimpse of a brief time in a local church. A time in history when a bunch of ordinary people from so many walks of life had their lives changed by Jesus. These letters can speak to us today because these, and these letters are worth our time because they are the first glimpses of the little fragments of the early life of the church. For all our differences and all the centuries between us, this is our life too. We occupy this same space. People following Jesus, shaped by grace, led by the Spirit, making their way in confusing times. Beautiful people, blessed people, stumbling and failing people, sometimes toxic people, deeply flawed expressions of community called to be the church in the place we find ourselves. The city of Colossae was one of a cluster of cities in the Phrygian Empire, a place that's now called Turkey. In its heyday, the city bustled with commerce and culture. It was especially for the famous for the production of one particular commodity good, something Edmontonians might be able to relate to. But for Colossae, it was the production of fine woolen goods. By the first century, though, Colossae was in decline, mostly because they shared a trade route with another city named Laodicea, which was situated in a more advantageous location. They had temples and stadiums and city squares and theaters and markets. Colossians were a colossal or were a cosmopolitan bunch, not a metropolis, but a city. Maybe they had a small market or junior hockey team. What they didn't know, actually, was that Colossae was actually only a decade or so from the earthquake which would destroy their entire city. Geology even gets to play a part in this story. Fun fact, the ruins of Colossae have never been excavated even to this day. And if you travel to Turkey, you can go and visit the big mound that remains of the city. Another interesting bit, from what we gather, Paul wrote this letter to a church he had never actually been a part of, or maybe even never met, probably during his first imprisonment in Rome. Word had gotten back to Paul that the church in Colossae was a really, really great place. A community struggling with competing theologies and ideologies of the day. Trying to make sense how best to live. What to embrace. Things to avoid. So really, a pretty typical normal church. Pretty typical temptations of religious life, economic power, competing voices, cultural pressure. Living as the church in any age is a challenge. And I think we all know that there are a lot of ways that we can mess this up. Our text this week and our sermon this week is only the intro, but there's actually a lot here in an introduction. 
This letter opens with such warmth and kindness. In so many ways, Paul expresses the heart of a loving pastor, a devoted fan. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Paul is so eager to speak life into this place. He's praying for them, rooting for them, cheering them on. And here he is once again talking about the fruitful life. The gospel that has come to you, just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it. This call to the fruitful life, which we hear time and again, is such a critical piece of Paul's work. The world needs the church to be a fruitful community. We need the regular reminder that the church is not a private project for a bunch of folksy folks. The church is an agent of gospel change in the world. Heaven knows, we all know, that we need different ways of doing things, different ways of living and being in the world. We already know well enough the poisonous fruit produced in abundance by our species, dividing, degrading, alienating, chipping away at the human soul, at our bodies, the air, the water, and the soil. We know this all too well. The harms caused by the systems we inhabit. We are neck deep in them. The church is called to the fruitful life because we need ways of living that are free and alive, that aren't toxic and selfish. Ways of living that don't hurt and destroy other people or the planet. And this is important because it's Paul isn't just talking about saving sinners and getting people into heaven. This is a matter of the redemption of the human soul in our world right now. The spirit alive in a new people, living a new creation. This is the call to the fruitful life. In the next four weeks, Ryan and Kathy and Sue and I will continue working through parts of this letter. And can I give you a little bit of summer homework? A few spiritual practices to add to your day, maybe? I'd suggest that maybe you read this letter to the church in Colossae. All these beautiful and encouraging parts. And even maybe some of the parts that you don't appreciate or understand. Maybe you can use this letter as a model for your own prayer during the week. Is there someone that you might root for? Are there people that you can pray for? If you don't have an answer, maybe sit in silence in a while. Listen to the Spirit. See where she takes you. Maybe you'll pray in secret. Maybe you'll even pray for someone in person. It's awkward. And weird for some of us, I know. Pray for the people in the church in the world. Pray for the people who worship with you each week. 
And as you read and as you pray, may you find the same passion for a fruitful church in the world. May you know the Spirit at work in your own life. And may you have eyes to see the gospel of Christ alive in the world around you. Amen.